section nine, Tanakh questions. Now this, of course, is going to be difficult for the average person who only has a yeshiva education because most of you have never seen Tanakh. So you have occasionally heard one of the stories perhaps brought down in a Tysus here and there. Occasionally you may have been exposed to, uh, you know, I don't know, a passing comment or a schmooze. But uh, to actually go Kaseda through Tanakh with Mepharshim and to be able to get a real Mahalach and what's going on, the average yeshiva guy, that is a rarity. Um, they always used to say that when the Jews for Jay would come to... Um, uh, start up with people, they knew that the average yeshiva guy could never defend them because they were going to be quoting Nach. You know, I'm <laughs> going, Psukhav Yishayahu. No, who knows any Psukhav Yishayahu, you know? Just this morning, somebody says to me, you know, uh, somebody asked me where a particular Pusik was. You know, he asked me, so I said, this must be in Tehillim. He said, that's what everyone says. It's either in Tehillim or Yishayahu. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because who knows what's there? You know, it's got to be something in there, you know? Might as well be there. So, uh, so therefore, when we're thrown questions from Tanakh, like, how do you explain this or how do you explain that? Um, the, it's difficult for us to um, to give a you know a, a prepared, accurate response. We might be able to say over you know a particular schmooze that we heard or a particular insight, etc. But to give a short type of an answer that will satisfy someone who's questioning Tanakh. And when questioning Tanakh, they don't mean like I have a cash on this Rashi, but rather they're using this as a springboard to um, question the authenticity of the Torah. So you have to be prepared to give some kind of a response that will hopefully satisfy a questioner. Now, I want you to understand that Spinoza and his works where he attacked uh, the Tanakh, he attacked it from the point of view of miracles. Right? Thomas Paine, in his uh, book Common Sense, when he attacked the Torah, he attacked it from the point of view of things he didn't like. When, um, when um, Clarence Darrow was um, uh, interrogating... Um, um, uh, uh, Bryant, uh, um, uh, yeah, but who's it? Bryant, uh, William Jennings Bryant, who had run for the president of the United States three times on the Democratic ticket, and this was in the Scopes trial where uh, he was teaching evolution, and he attacked the Torah. He was attacking it from the point of view of the, um, uh, you know, the, the lack of scientific accuracy, things that just didn't make sense, right? Uh, I mentioned this already that, you know, when I, I heard this debate between this reformed conservative and orthodox rabbi about whether or not, um, you know, the Torah was given by God. So the reformed position was, of course not, because if God gave it, he would not have said this or said that or done this or done that. So these are the various types of attacks, and you'll notice that I've done it in that way. A, B, and C creation story, age of the universe, archaeological disproof, are dealing with it from the point of view of the scientific difficulties. Uh, D, deals with specific miracles. E, deals with the others doing bad things. You know, how could you imagine that they would have done X, Y, or Z? And F, is the section of I can't accept. Certain things that people just can't accept about Tanakh. So, the truth of the matter is that someone who learns Tanakh will have hundreds of questions to ask. And I want to give a brief introduction to this because I think this is an essential point. I spoke about this all the way back at the beginning, if you remember when I spoke about how to deal with day school kids. Um, and that is that the educational system, unfortunately, is not necessarily designed to encourage 
um, honest, free thinking. Right? Um, I, I, I had this situation of a girl who came to my house who was very, very upset, and uh, she was she had come out of her chumash uh, class in seminary. This was a seminary here in, in Israel. I'm not talking about you know in eighth grade. And the teacher gave them some sukkim to prepare and then said, okay, what are your questions? And the girl said, fine. I have, you know, you know people will give questions. So she asked one question and the answer she got was, oh, it always talks that way. You know? They asked another question. Well, isn't this redundant over there? She said, uh, no, that's, uh, you know, just, it's, uh, yeah, no, nothing. Don't worry about it. Because <laughs> it wasn't what the teacher happened to have prepared. Now the fact of the matter is that when someone comes and asks you a question in Tanakh, your, your, your first thing is, see, is it a reasonable question or not? What do I mean by an unreasonable question? An unreasonable question means it might be uh, based upon a fully premise. Right? Um, you know, so a person will, um, will say to you, you know, uh, how do you explain the fact that... Um, um, that you know, if if God is supposed to be infinite with no image, how do you explain the fact that we were created in the image of God, that we look like God? So that's a mistranslation, right? Selim doesn't mean that. We mentioned, for example, by Shabbos, where people will confuse concepts like avoda and malacha. So that's not it's not so much you know that's not a, a, a serious question that you have to try to deal with, right? There's one question that I've never been asked. Except just this week by a rabbi, you see, which is the reason I don't think obligated to put it on the list. But I'm just giving you an example. Someone came up to me and said, "Can you explain to me the concept of the goel dam?" And I said, "No, absolutely not. <laughs> I, I do not have a good mahalach in it. This vigilanteism where the guy goes out and tries to kill him. You know what I mean? And the guy has to run to base and then he's safe. But if he steps out, he can kill him. But if the kangoto dies the next day, ha ha, you can't touch me. It's it's difficult. I don't have a good mahalach in it at this point. I hopefully will. But when people will come over and ask questions, you know, and that's fine. And I and I think that's excellent questions. We should be training ourselves as well as other people to be able to ask questions. And and therefore, when a person comes to you with a question, as opposed to just saying, I don't know, you know, oh, it could be. Uh, first thing is, be mocked of the question. It's an excellent question. It's an excellent question. Let's let's take a look. You know, we have to move beyond a certain defensiveness of, oh no, well, there's no questions. Of course, there's questions. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of questions, and there should be. And the more we encourage people to find the questions, the better off we'll be. We also have to understand that the questions are an opportunity to release the genius of Torah. It's a genius of Torah. And, I, and, I, and those of you who don't do this, I'm going to suggest, especially if you plan on going to any of these related fields, that you should definitely make a Seder and Chumash and Rashi. Be'in. By that, I don't mean that you have to go through the, you know, the many, many Svarim of Perushim on Rashi. But be as critical when you see a Rashi and Chumash as you are when you know that you're walking into a Pilpul Shion at Taisvis and the Rashiva has you working on the Taisvis for three days beforehand because you know that you're going to be taking it apart. Look at every Rashi and ask those kind of questions. Ask the kind of questions you should ask. You know, I had somebody in my, in my Shabbos table once who said, Oh, in my house we used to throw around these questions on Tanakh. You know, I said, Oh, for example, it was Pashas Noach. So I said, well, so one time, you know, my father threw out, what's with the birds? Why are you sending out the birds? So, you know, of course, you know, to see if there's dry land, you know? So what does it make? He couldn't steer. They couldn't leave the table until Hashem told them to. So we stopped. Columbus wants to find out if the land is dry yet, you know? It's a great question. 
a great question. It's the kind of question that people should ask. It's the kind of thing that, you know, that we just hear and we're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, stop, think, examine. And the more you, and just write them down. I've had questions I've been working on for, for, for 10, 15 years. I don't have answers to yet, you know. And, and I have other questions that I've been working on for years. And Baruch Hashem, I've come up with Mahalchim that, you know, that people have said to me sound like MS. That's about as good as I can hope for <laughs> in my position in life, you know. <laughs> Look around and you'll be surprised at how often there are answers. The particular question that this girl came, uh, came to me and asked, it was a Gemara. It's Vachim, where they learn the whole thing. I learned the whole thing from this particular passage. Besides, I can't fault the seminary lady who was preparing it that she didn't have to see the Gemara in Zvachim. I can't fault her, you know. But not to acknowledge that there's a question. You can't do that. I see this when I, when I told my Gemara here. So I would, I would show them at the beginning, the few first few weeks, I'd be Medayik and Arashi. We'd take apart all the Rashis, you know. And then we'd, you would get down to business, and then I realized I created these monsters. And they would come in and say, why is Rashi like this? Why is Rashi like that? I don't know. <laughs> I just showed you how to do it. I didn't actually suggest you do it. <laughs> but a Rashi and a Chumash, of course. Like the Rashi Bam, who was no slouch, he says, I could have written the parish that Rashi wrote on Shas, but I could never have written the parish that he wrote on Chumash. So Chumash and Rashi has got to be bread and butter, and you'll find out how much you get out of there. But also, when you, you, when you see things, look at it with, a, with, an, with an open mind and an open eye to be able to see what are the possible problems and questions people come up with. So let's get down to business. We'll start answering the questions, at least developing some type of Mahalach. A, B, and C, the creation story, age of the universe, and archaeological disproof. Now, this is the beginning. Right? When people want to attack the Torah at the beginning, and they'll talk about how it's non-scientific, the first thing they'll start with is, you know, you really believe that the world is 5,757 years old? Uh, don't we know that it is anywhere between 8 and 20 billion years, generally accepted at 16 billion years? We know this from many different sources, not just from the carbon-14 uh, deterioration, which... Um, which is, again, open for discussion, but also from cosmic rays from outer space and other types of, uh, you know, what you would say, different types of uh, universal clocks that have been uh, set in, you know, and that's generally accepted scientifically, right? That's one. The second thing is, which I didn't put down over here, is where are the dinosaurs? Why aren't there any dinosaurs? You know, gosh, I saw them all in Jurassic Park. You know, there they were. Colorful ones. You know, ones that shoot poison. Ones that this, ones that that. It's pretty good. I know they can tell all that from a couple of bones. But, uh, you know, I mean, but they, there they were in living color, you know. To try to deny that there are dinosaurs when there are all these fossils around, you know, that was at one point, that was a particular approach. What dinosaurs? <laughs> at this point, it's not so tenable. So, um, uh, so that's, that's probably the biggest problem. Second thing is the whole creation story that God created the world, you know what I mean, from nothing, when we know it was done from evolution, yeah, and, uh, and then the various archaeological disproof. So let's deal with those right at the beginning. I heard somebody say once a very nice thing, he says, you know, when Clarence Darrow was taking apart uh, uh, William Jennings Bryant, you see, William Jennings Bryant was really stuck because he was a fundamentalist Christian. And he had no choice but to, but to defend, literally, his English translation of a Latin translation, of a Greek translation, of the original Hebrew that we never claimed was literal. Right? 
no, nobody claims that you're supposed to understand the psukim literally. We say that there's a Torah Shabbat path that explains it. So therefore, if anybody says, are you prepared to literally accept every word of the Torah? The answer is, of course not. We don't suggest taking out an eye for an eye. And we've never believed that. Of course, we don't believe in taking the Torah literally. We believe that Akash Baruch Hu gave the Torah with an explanation. Right? So why does it say things that way? Because you should know that when you take out somebody's eye by right, you deserve to lose your eye. We don't do it. We don't do it. But you should know that, uh, that from the point of view of justice, absolute justice, that's what you should get. But we don't do absolute justice. And therefore it's ayin tachas ayin, which is keset. But everything's there to teach us a, teach us a, a lesson. Famous Gemara, in, uh, when it discusses uh, when Moshe Rabbeinu is writing down the Torah, and there's a few things he doesn't like. He has, has editorial difficulty with, uh, with God. So Kosh uh, Baruch tells him, write down, you know, Nasa Adam Salmena, we made, you know, and, and let's make man in our image. And Moshe says, I can't write that. Then the God, I can't write that. Somebody will make a mistake. And they'll think that there's more than one God. And Hashem says, anyone who wants to make a mistake, let him make a mistake. The person who wants to make a mistake, there's more than enough material to make a mistake. He says, but I'm, I'm not writing this. You understand, to, uh, to get a good book review in the New York Times? I'm writing this to be able to teach Ludari Doris MS. And I wanted to know that I, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, in my infinite, you know, Anivis, was willing to uh, speak to the Malachim and consult them on an issue that, frankly, I don't really need their input on. And therefore, you should never hesitate to be totally modest and to seek other people's opinions, even if they're less than you. Yeah, that's how you have to be. So Kosh Baruch Hu wanted to teach to us. Blessed the person makes that mistake. So therefore, no, it's not meant to be taken literally. And notice it says people who want to make the mistake, because when it comes to the actual creation, it says, and Hashem made singular. Yeah? So therefore, a person who wants to make a mistake, a person who wants to look at Tyra and find proofs for anything they want, that's why when, they were, when the Septuagint was written and they translated it, no, the Targum Shivam, I should really say, which doesn't seem to have been actually the Septuagint. But when the Targum Shivam was, was written, then one of the changes they made was right at the beginning. Elkim Barab Reishis Hashanayim Yisaretz. Because they didn't want you to think that maybe Bereshis was the name of a master god who created Elkim, who created the Shanaim yeah. Yisaretz. Yeah? Right, you want to make a mistake, you can find a mistake, you can make a mistake on anything. But no, we don't have to defend things literally. Yeah? Okay. So therefore comes the creation story. <clears throat> and people say, well, the whole creation story is yeah, what exactly is the problem with the creation story? The creation story happens to fit in perfectly with what scientists claim was the order of creation. There was a creation of um, matter ex nihilu at some point, and then it um, was used to... Uh, you know, the, the, the planets are created, and the stars, and then the earth is created, and then um, vegetation, and cold-blooded animals, and warm-blooded animals, and human beings. Well, the order is precise. Not only that, but as opposed to other creation myths of other civilization, there are no weird monsters, there are no, you know, uh, giant things that, uh, that uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. The, the other thing which is fascinating is that the, as opposed to most creation stories, everything comes from nothing. Pops out of nowhere. As opposed to, um, you know, most stories, which where it starts with something. 
life comes out of a big pond or there's some sort of a thing. Starts off, Rashi's brother came as a Shemayim, there was nothing there beforehand. Things were created from nothing. Yeah. Now, we discussed this a little bit at one point, uh, I think all the way back at the beginning, but uh, maybe just bare repetition to put it in over here, and that is, <clears throat> historically, everybody always believed that we lived in a static universe, the idea by the Greeks, and it was, the majority of scientists didn't change their opinion until the mid-1970s, and that was that the universe always was, it was eternal. They've mentioned this, that, uh, what's his name writing, um, uh, the English philosopher Bertrand Russell, right? He has this article he wrote on atheism, right? And uh, he says, you know, when I was a kid, people said to me, well, the world had to come from someplace. Where did it come from? Until finally I realized, where did God come from? Right? Well, it's just as God, you want to claim God was eternal, the universe is eternal. Uh, it comes along science now and says the Big Bang. As if that's supposed to be some kind of cash on us. The Big Bang. Vushtate the Big Bang. It says that there was nothing. Suddenly a small amount of matter popped in. And from there expanded out the entire universe. Shkayach. Get caught up to us. Gracious brother. Cameras of Shemai Vizar. It's a Kajabarach who created from nothing matter. And then it expanded. Right? Terrific. Fits in great with our story. Hi. What do you need God for? Maybe it just came about from evolution. Maybe. Maybe. No intelligent scientist will entertain that today. The, 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 the Earth, according to scientists, are 3.8 billion years old. And the oldest life is found in rocks 3.8 billion years old. The Earth cools and immediately life appears. And then, you know, we understand from Darwin, you know, this kind of idea, it goes like this, and a sort of upward curve, slowly, you know, but that's not true. Life goes like this and explodes. And it remains static and explodes. It's uh, that, that little tree of um, that little tree of evolution that those of you who went to high school, you know, might have seen where it's at the bottom, it's like the you know, whatever it was, the paramecium's moves up to the hydras, moves up this way, now we have that little thing, all the things branching off. That's great. There's one small problem with it. All of those things appeared at exactly the same time. This was discovered, by the way, in the early 1900s by the director of the Smithsonian. With thousands of fossils. I don't know why this didn't make the papers. <laughs> Maybe because they would have to change all the little pictures of the textbooks. It's just not true. The idea that first it was this, and then there was nothing, and then finally the next one came along, and the next one, it's not true. They call it the Big Bang of Evolution. Was it, was it this past year that it was a cover story in Newsweek? Newsweek of Time, I don't know which one it was. It was a cover story. Big Bang Revolution. They can't explain it. They can't explain it. How that happened. It should have been a slow, gradual process. Okay. So let's forget this whole just given enough time and, and, and matter and, and energy and anything can develop. No, it's not true. <clears throat> Scientific American writing on the subject writes, the odds of life Appearing by pure chance is the odds of a tornado sweeping through a junk junkyard and assembling a 747. In scientific terms, it's considered to be um, the it's the the odds are so scientifically slight as to be considered impossible. Right. So therefore, what do you want to tell me? You want to tell me that 
um, <clears throat> the universe popped into existence at some point and then expanded out and eventually life developed in exactly the cycle that the Torah says I'm with you I'm with you right the way perfect whoever came up with the current theories must have copied it out of the Torah excellent so what exactly is your problem? hmm okay where's the dinosaurs? where's the dinosaurs? what's your problem exactly? Well, it should be in there with the... Yeah. With what? With the cold-blooded mammal. Okay. How many psukum are they dealing with cold-blooded uh, creatures, with birds and fish? Three? How, mu- how much did you want there? <laughs> how many things did you want listed? You got birds and reptiles, yeah, and uh, fish. Okay, which one are dinosaurs? Reptiles? They're there. Fish? They're there. Birds, they're there. Oh, nobody mentioned that there were these things that developed along the way and vanished. Mm-hmm. For what purpose? So when we find the big bones, we'll know they were... Uh, okay, terrific. I heard somebody want to suggest maybe that's the Taninim Agdolim that it's referring to, the giant lizards. Hey, Peseda. You know? But whether or not dinosaurs were there or not, you know, I don't know why you necessarily need that there. So as far as the story goes, the story's fine. By the way, there is this approach... I don't know if you're aware of it, that uh, they they came out with these um, puddings last summer with pictures of dinosaurs on it. And uh, I think it was the Aguda, it was giving the Hashkacha, was going to take off the Hashkacha because they had the nerve to put on a picture of a dinosaur. I, I don't know that we're going to gain by, at this day and age, trying to fight whether or not they ever were dinosaurs. You know? So they were dinosaurs. Peseda. Can a person be an Orthodox Jew and believe they were dinosaurs? Absolutely, no problem. Next. Brontosaurus, Stegosaurus, Rondosaurus, yeah, sure, no problem. Tyrannosaurus, right, yeah, he's there too, sure. And they could have all had feathers and but yeah, no problem. Just like in the movie, just like in the movie, no problem, yeah. You happy? Good. Next. <laughs> I'm going to sit there and fight whether or not there was a, a, a Stegosaurus. Yeah. How do you deal with the universe with 5,000 Oh, so that, I want to deal with, that's the creation story. The whole creation story goes fine. Ella Watt, we have to fall back now to B, and that's Age of the Universe. So how do you explain the fact that it was created in 5,756 years? It's only 5,756 years. So I'll give you the easiest one. Easiest one. Who says it's 5,756 years old? The Torah does. No, it doesn't. It says it's 5,756 years since Adam was created. <clears throat> yeah, but before that it says it was six days. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? But those six days aren't discussed. We don't say the universe is 5,756 and six days old. Rosh Hashanah is counting from day one. The 5,756 years are counting from day one. With a regular six days before that? I don't know how you have to say that. How do we determine a day? The sun and the moon. There's no sun and moon. So whatever, whatever this day was, it's more than that. You know? Um, there's a very, you know, if, if you like this kind of approach, the cute approach uh, Dr. Schroeder uses, wherein he, um, he has a book called Genesis and the Big Bang, and uh, what he suggests is the following. I had to explain this to my son once. I don't know, did I tell you this story? My son, my, I'm driving my son home, and he says, um, Abba, I have a question. I said, yeah, but I'm afraid it might be apicursus. Kids 10 years old, so the Chayden Yerushalayim, they teach them well. <laughs> I'm afraid it might be Abi Christmas. 
Tanya's, but this is funny, you know. I said, well, Yaakov, if you, if you don't ask, how will you know? <laughs> so he says, yeah, but what if it is, you know? I said, well, you're going to have to take that chance. What if you don't ask the question? I can't tell you if it's up because it's not. So he says, okay, how old is the world? I said, kid can't be asking me evolution, <laughs> you know. I said, Pasha's 5,156, uh, 5,757 5, years old. So he like, looks around, he says, so what was there before that? I said, what? I says, I mean, what was going on before that? I said, Apicaris! <laughs> he was like, he was really, I said, you can ask it, don't worry about it, you know? He, of course, was working on Chagiga, don't ask what was before, what was after, you know? So, uh, so I tried to explain to him the following concept, and that is, in Newtonian physics, there's the concept of, that means, according to Newton, Lefie Newton, right, the guy with the apple on the head? Okay. <laughs> Lefie Newton, there's a, you know, I just want to show you how you throw in a term like Newtonian physics and it sounds like you have an education. Okay, anyway. Lefie Newton, and this is, this is how people understood physics for a very long time. Time was, I was going to say time is pristine, stands pristine. It's, it's away from everything. So there's a big clock somewhere up in the sky. And that's time. And that was how we understood it. Comes along Einstein and the theory of relativity. And he says, not true. It's not true. Time goes in waves. And it's affected by where... By, it's affected by matter and um, velocity. So let me, let me try to... What? So let me try to put this into, into uh, uh, the marshal that I heard. Imagine a giant, 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 giant planet. Right? A person on that planet, two minutes would have elapsed in his time, on his watch. Two minutes would have elapsed. And on Earth, two years would have elapsed. He would be only two minutes old. Older than he was. And you on Earth would have been two years older. I so what you mean they perceive time differently? No. Time itself goes slower or faster depending where you are. There is no big clock. So they this is an interesting theory, they and it answers a lot of caches. So they sat down to try to prove this. And what did they do? They took a whole bunch of clocks, calibrated to a billionth of a second. Yeah? It's hard to measure a billionth of a second. To put it in terms, those of us who live here in Yerushalayim, you'll know, the amount of time from a red light turning to the yellow before it turns to green. As soon as the green, as soon as the red turns to yellow and the first car beeps, that's a billionth of a second. So you, have a, so you have a frame of reference, yeah? So the clocks are calibrated to a billionth of a second. And they took some of them and sent them up into space where obviously the gravity would be less. And when they brought them down, those clocks were running faster. Barely perceptibly, but clearly running faster than the ones that remained on Earth. Time really changes. Consequently, time is completely controlled by matter. If there's no matter, there's no time. When we talk about time, we're only talking about time within this little sphere. That's not even a sphere, but this little uh, ellipt- elliptical existence we call the universe. Out-
outside there is no time. There's no matter and there's no space. So what is it? Understand? What is it that's not time, not space, not matter? Shkaya. Welcome to infinity. Now you, you can't understand what that means. I can't understand what that means. Right? But whatever that existence is, where there's no time, that's what there was. Before the universe was created, you can't talk about what happened 10 minutes before creation any more than you can talk about how big is God? How much does he weigh? Where does he live? What's his wife's name? You understand? You can't ask any of those questions of the Jewish God. Other gods, you could. Right? But, uh, oh, he has a wife, he's a kid. But uh, by us, we don't have that. So you can't, the question is, presu- is based on a presumption that there's time without matter. There isn't. Consequently, let me just finish this, not the question. Consequently, this is what he wants to suggest. The first parak, which is dealing with those first six days of creation, it's not talking from an earth point of view. It's talking from the point of view of the universe. Meaning, the universe, which is 10 to the 52nd grams of matter, according to current scientific thought, if you were to compact that into a little ball, right? That's going to be real dense. 10 to the 52nd. And you were to stand on that, as opposed to standing on earth, Imagine six days go by here, six periods of 24 hours on that ball. I didn't do the equations, Dr. Schroeder did the equations. Contrast that to, the, to six days on Earth. Me, contrast six days on that ball to how much it would go on Earth. On Earth, that would equal approximately 16 billion years. In other words, 16 billion years on Earth on this big ball of matter would equal 5.8 days. 5.8 days. So, he wants to suggest that the six days are actually based on looking at the universe as a whole as opposed to just looking at the planet Earth. And then, when we enter as human beings and we, phase, we start dealing now just with Earth time, kicks in the other calendar from Rosh Hashanah. From that, it's 5,757 years. That's, that's the theory he would like to, he would like to put forward. What's, what's interesting about this is, I was once there and somebody says, but that's not true, because as the universe expanded, so the matter would become uh, more diffuse and time would slow down. He says, exactly. Therefore, if you read the events that are described in the six days of creation, the amount of time in scientific terms that would pass on the first day was 8 billion years. The second day when Earth appears is approximately 4 billion years, 3.8 billion, right? And then the next day is 2 billion years. The next one is 1 billion years. When animals, you know, and that's our life pop up, is five, five, is half a billion years, 500 million years ago. When we call mammals first appears 250 million years ago, and that's day six. You're right, of course it keeps expanding, and because of that, the time starts slowing down exponentially. So, this is his theory that he uses to explain how the six days of creation could in fact be six 24-hour periods of time, if you look at it from a universal point of view, as opposed to looking at it from an earthbound point of view. That's the svar. Yeah. Oh, I'm saying, okay, you yeah. So, if you want to deal now with the concept of Adam Arishon and his father, and that whole kind of thing, so he wants to be Medayik from the Ramban. The Ramban says that there was a process in the creation where first, he, where first Adam had a Nefesh Bahamius, and afterwards a Kesh Baruch who put in the Nisham. 
So he'd like to suggest that what we call Neanderthal man, there is a reference to um, in the Mishnah, it was the Isha Sada, right? Who doesn't, who, what is it? It's called a human being. It's a humanoid without a neshama. In other words, what we call Neanderthal man, which by the way is not human, it's a different type of a humanoid thing. Is that what we call a homo sapien? Right? And again, it's comfortable to say that it evolved, but we don't have any evidence of that. So what, and we find that the Neanderthals pop up someplace, and then humans pop up someplace next, etc. So it could be that, so to speak, he took a humanoid form that was in existence and put it in a shama. That's what he wants to suggest. Is that or, shorter? Yeah. So, if it works for people, you know what I'm saying? And you can sleep at night. Anyway, so that's, uh, that's what he does with that. And this is this whole approach, which, by based on present scientific thinking, is very comfortable. Very comfortable. So, uh, so this, is the, this is the approach that he uses to the age of the universe. There's a few other approaches, but, we'll, but I, I want to start with this one. Yeah? Why was there only one other? What about the other... Uh... Humanoids? Really, all died out. You can hardly find any Neanderthal today unless you find them boxing. But for the most part, you don't find these saying that those types of humanoids will die down. Or they went with the dodo bird and the, and, the, and the dinosaurs. They were the raw material from which things were created. It's cute, no? Yeah. Anything else on this? Yeah. Oh, so it works out very nice because if we define a day as a period of 24 hours, Sotaka, it was the seventh day. Right. In other words, the Baruch Hu, from a Baruch Hu's point of view, there were six days of 24 hours. You just have to look at the universe as a whole. And then comes Shabbos, and now he's turning to an earthbound character. No, no, you are, it switches. What we call Rosh Hashanah, right, is the sixth day. The first day of, of this is the sixth day, which means that then the seventh day would then would be the which would be the second day of Tishrei on our earthbound character would be the first Shabbos. And the end Shabbos, the Shabbos. Like, then the calendars jive. Yeah. Does it say what the? Oh, but one more point on this. I just have to tell you, and that is, so so I so what about now? Someone can tell you what? So who says Taka 5,757 years ago the first people existed with, you know, with a soul? So anthropologists, you know what those are? People who study civilization. See, everyone has to make a living. Anthropologists claim that <clears throat> there is that what we call civilization. The first building, as opposed to like the cave people with the little, uh, uh, right? Where what we would call cities, civilization, all that kind of stuff, they put at developing at approximately 6,000 years ago. So, that's the stem. Yeah, go ahead. Right? Nope. Nope. How old you? were uh, 18 billion years old. Yeah. Scientifically. But, uh, Wait, 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 you want to give a different answer? Yeah. Just say that. But first, you got this in? Got this one down? Say I don't think we can explain the time thing very You know what? Um, I'll tell you the following. Listen over to this tape a couple of times. I remember when I sat, in the, I, I sat there the first time, you know, I was sitting next to a big time to 
and he was he was going through this stuff. Now physics, when I went to high school, when I went to high school, you had a choice between taking physics and earth science. <laughs> earth science, we studied like weather maps and stuff, you know. And needless to say, which one I took, and uh, I was more into the soft sciences. Yeah. So, um, so physics, like I tried to avoid like the plague. So here I am, and he's sitting there spouting this stuff, and you know, writing equations. I didn't give you all the crap. I didn't even mention quark formation. Okay, so I was real easy on you. Anyway, he's sitting there, and I'm taking notes, and I'm listening desperately, and I'm going over this. And the guy I'm with is like nodding, you know, nodding, he's following, uh, not writing anything down. And halfway through, I turned to him, I said, are you getting this? He goes, not a word. <laughs> so the second time I listened, it made more sense. The third time, it made more sense. So I, if you listen to this a couple of times, if you want, if you have a, a bend for it, take the book. But let's say you can't go through the whole thing. All you have to do is say the following. You know, when a person says, yeah, but what about the first six days? He said, well, that wasn't part of our calendar. We're not saying it's 6,000 years since the, since the formation of, uh, you know, the first matter. We're saying it's 6,000 years since the appearance of the first human being within the Shama. You know? And before that, before that. If, I would say someone, if you're really interested, I have a great book on the subject. It's called Genesis of the Big Bang. You read through it. But you'll find that it's no contradiction. That's it. You can leave it at that. So like we don't have to be just like you know. You don't have to be an, ex, an expert in shkita. If somebody asks you why it's the most humane thing to refer them to the book, you know, and you don't have to be an expert in, in all the philosophical overtones of God's essence to refer someone to Derech Hashem. That's fine. Here you go. Here, take the book. You know, that, that's legal, by the way. Okay. So this is one fine approach. Now here's the second approach. The second approach. That's the one you were referring to. Um. Adam and Chava created. If you read the story literally, they created uh, uh, immediately, and they placed in the Garden of Eden, and the whole story starts to unfold. So, from the text, the Mashmaris, how old is Adam? Twenty. 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 Twenty-five. Right? How old is is Eve? A little younger, right? Yeah. Somewhere between eighteen and twenty-three, right? Okay, fine. Yeah, but they're only one minute old. But they appear to be in their early 20s. Right? And they're looking at these trees. And how old do the trees appear? They're really a couple of days old. How old do they appear to be? 100 years old. Yeah. In the background, there's a mountain. How old does that appear to be? Millions of years old. Yeah. Underneath them are petroleum deposits. <laughs> how old is that? You know, 250 million years old. Whatever it is, you know. Yeah, Sure. That's okay. In other words, you're going to have to create the world so it looks like it's completely finished. You know, you'll have some carbon-14 that's already, uh, you know, uh, decayed. And you know that? In other words, no scientist can tell you that was, it was this created to look like it was old. If it was created from nothing by a creator, could he have created so it looks old? Yeah, sure. Sure. I can't tell you for sure. Right? Use car salesman. Turn back the odometer, give it a new paint job, and put in new carpeting. You know for sure how old it is? <laughs> you want to make something look older, look younger? There's this guy who, uh, who was arrested. He, was, he, was, he took advantage of the Mormon church. And... Um, he, he made all these phony papers and stuff like that. So uh, what he did is he went, you know, he was afraid that maybe they would uh, carbon date him. So he went and took a, a thing that was a, like a hundred years old paper and he took it and he burnt it. And he used that to make the ink. So if they tested it, it'll be older, you know. You want to fake something so it looks old? Fake something so it looks old. 
you know, age it under radiation. So that's something you can do. In other words, all you can say is the world looks, the Earth as it now stands, looks like it's 3.8 billion years old. That's true. But you can't tell me how old it really is. That's the second approach. Personally, I think the first approach is much more satisfying to people because this is like you're playing games with them, in my opinion. Yes, sir? I've said something online. There's a point to the, to the world. And for the point for the world to be reached, you need a certain amount of tools. So God created the universe 5,757 years ago with all the tools that are made. And all the tools that are necessary are petroleum and all sorts of things. So how did he make it? <coughs> so he made it as if you had the Big Bang going along. And then he it took a slice. And from 5,006, it went on. Of course, so God imagined the time before. But the difference between reality and God imagining it is a little... So whether it happened or it didn't happen, it doesn't matter. That's, that's people like that? Yeah. Okay. I, 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 I can never say that with a straight face. But if, but if people like it, I'm just saying, like, you know, it's styled. I, I had, I had these times and people, you know, tell me certain answers that they give that I thought were horrendous, and then they got away with it. I, I mean, people liked it. Yeah. Um, the logical continuation of the second argument is that Coach Parker created the world with fossils already in the rocks. Or you, or you could say like this. This is an answer I heard once of this. So why then were the dinosaurs? Well, where were going to get the fossil fuels? They needed fossils. They were already in the rocks. No. He, the, within this whole, you know, speeded up process, he made dinosaurs, had them die out, and had them uh, sit in the rocks and deteriorate into petroleum and coal. Ferns. Isn't that a... Sh- isn't and what? Ferns. And ferns. Ferns. Isn't there a problem that... Cottage Park was supposed to be MS, an absolute MS, and this, it doesn't look... Wait, why are we going it, on the why, why is God coming along yeah. and trying to make me think that the world is a million, a million years old? It's, it's not a question of if he wants to make a mistake. He's, he's, he's setting up the system so that there'll be carbon dating, which will show me built in a billion years, and this, and that, and the other. Okay. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't strike me that that's a million MS. Right. So that would have been... It would have been pretty depressing, though, for Adam and Chava to have been born at, like, one minute old, with nobody to take care of them, and trees that are two days old won't have food for years, and everybody would die. <laughs> that wouldn't be good. <laughs> on, a, on an Earth's crust that hasn't cooled. <laughs> so I guess Midas Amr is going to have to give way to Midas Rachamim. What do we use um, um, deteriorated carbon-14 for? No, like for what? Pencils. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Carbon dating. You write it up you with a pencil. <laughs> June 14. See, it's written in carbon. All right. All right. Where are we now? Age of the universe. So that's the thing. You know, the, the, those are those are two fine approaches that we use, and and basically what you say is, so do you literally believe that the world was created in six days? I say not necessarily. There are there are these different, you know, Hamid um, Ramban who has this whole husband that it's really, you know, he has a whole husband that it's really, you know, the universe is uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of years old and stuff. You know, we don't we don't have to stick to the exact, uh, you know, uh, six days that's written there because obviously the six days. Because there's a bigger question. That's, of course, the point. The point of all this stuff. Why Why would a Kosh Baruch Hu create the world in six days? An all-powerful, infinite God doesn't need six days to do it. 
Like, we're so impressed. Why did he do that? How could he have done it in only six days? He could have done it in a nanosecond. Even less. What? So that's why I give it a second. Yeah, nanosecond. Right? He could have just popped everything into existence. Could have brought, could have brought up in each six days. And each night he has to go home and go to sleep. <laughs> Come back the next day. Obviously, there's a message. And this is something that I use that will bring us now into, which we'll use in D. But, uh, um, but hold that idea for a moment. Let's go to C. Archaeological disproof. Archaeological disproof, for those of you unfamiliar with archaeology, they dig up old stuff and draw conclusions about what happened thousands of years ago. Now, there's a lot of problems with this. See? Um, they, uh, uh, they, what do you call it? The, the story they say, you know, the ancient Israelites had, had wireless communication. So how do you know? Because they've been digging in Israel for years and they haven't found any wires. It must be it was wireless, right? The general rule in archaeology is that the lack of evidence is not evidence. We've been digging for years and we haven't found any proof of, uh, you know, of the Israelites. Uh, excuse me, of, um, of uh, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. I haven't found any proof of them. So what? You understand? Maybe you just dug in the wrong places. Kathleen Kenyon. Kathleen Kenyon is an archaeologist who was uh, very anti-Semitic. And in fact, after Israel, you know, she would only do digs in Palestine when Israel, you know, where, what was then Jordan, when Israel, uh, after the 67 war, would never come back here and, and uh, dig. So, you, you ever see those big Southern Wall Temple Mount excavations? So when Jordan had the place, Catherine Kenyon had first shot. Now, the way you're supposed to do archaeology is you dig these, like, four um, holes, and then you dig a trench, you know, and based on what you find there, you get a basic idea of what to do. So Catherine Kenyon dug her four holes, she dug her trench, you know that? And there was nothing there. And so she concluded there was nothing on the southern wall. Now, of course, Coach Baruch will make sure with her mazel, she hit all the, the places where there wasn't anything. You go there now and you see they found remains of palaces, they found mikvos, they found steps going up to the base of Migdash, they found what they didn't find, you know? Catherine Canyon, you take a look at everything over there. Remember that Catherine Canyon said, have you ever seen the pictures from 67 where the whole thing was just covered in dirt? Catherine Canyon said there was nothing there. I say so. She must know. Right? She's an archaeologist. My favorite story, my first year when I came to Berlin, which was 1975, the Jerusalem Post um, published this article by uh, a um, renowned archaeologist who said that the story at the beginning of Sefi Yoshua obviously is a fabrication. Why? Because what happens? The tomb of Raglan come to visit Rachel. And she hides him on the roof of her building. She then lets, the story says that they climb down from a rope onto the city wall, and from there they escape. So the archaeologists made the following judgment. In order for a wall to offer any protection, it has to be at least one story high. In order for a roof to be high enough to let yourself down by a rope, it has to be at least two stories high. And we know, wrote the archaeologist, that there were no buildings in the time of Yoshua, that were two stories tall. Throw away safety Yoshua. It's wrong. It's wrong. There was an article four months later in the Jerusalem Post, it was either 1975 or the beginning of 76, wherein they reported an archaeologist saying that they discovered houses of three and four stories in height from the time of Yoshua. Whoops. Made a mistake. Here's another famous one. 
the story of the other so obviously uh, fabrications that will Anyway, so they were obviously not over that. They were obviously uh, I'll, I'll get the other thing. They obviously were fabrications. Why? Because it says that they they you have stories of Abraham and these people that are riding on camels, using camels, and we know again, we know, we know that the camel was not domesticated until three centuries later. Uh, then they discovered evidence in hieroglyphics of the camel being used centuries earlier. They just hadn't found it yet. <clears throat> so what's fascinating here is the fact that there are people who think, you know, archaeo- you know the, the archaeological evidence is we've been digging and we haven't found any evidence of. So what? There's no evidence, the fact that you haven't found it. So that's, um, that's the first thing you have to know about archaeology. When archaeology says something, you have to know that you know, they can be drawing upon conclusions, they can be making conclusions, drawing upon information that's based on the lack of evidence. Point number two. All of archaeology, by definition, is speculation. It's what you think happened. You can't prove it happened. It's based on the evidence that we've uncovered we would like to now create a scenario that would explain this information. That could be wrong. You might have picked up, you know, a particular thing. You know, there was um, Barbara Tuckman, who's a historian, she wrote a book called The Distant Mirror about life in the 14th century. And she says you have to understand that we're tremendously limited when we try to recreate historically what took place because um, the materials that we have available are usually from the nobility <coughs> and the classes. Who else had the money to, to, uh, to hire a historian, to chronicle it? So whether this represents what really took place or what these particular people wanted to give a slant to, we don't know. So therefore, the materials that you also have, you don't know how they've been slanted. Okay. Uh, based on hieroglyphics and stuff like that, you know. Yeah. Well, there are no history books per se. There are no, you know, necessarily books. There are hieroglyphics that will tell certain stories. Yeah, I mean they'll tell you also stuff about ten thousand years. You know, if you if you, if you listen closely. But um, yeah, right. They'll tell you stuff. Barbarians invaded Greece two thousand BC. Right. I'll give you that one. I know the stuff that they want to tell you happened, but you understand, a lot of this stuff, the, the whole dating process is in a complete um, process of, revive, uh, of revisal. They, they, they found that um, um, uh, these Egyptians had their hieroglyphics, and they would just change the names. So why should I go and hire someone to write a whole fancy hieroglyphics? I'll take his hieroglyphics, of course, I have his name and write in mine. They found other stuff put on top of other hieroglyphics, you know, they, with x-rays. They found somebody else, you know, superimposed there, you know, a couple of things. So, what we sit down, ironclad, and say, well, this was obviously, you know, Thakabukiya the fourth and Yamagawa the sixth, you know, and uh, Thakakami the ninth. A lot, this is such total speculation. 
and, and it's assuming, of course, that the Egyptians were such honest chroniclers. Right? The third thing you have to take into account is that since so much of this is based on interpretation, the bias is very intense. The majority, I shouldn't say that, there's, there's shifts. There's shifts. Um, at one point, archaeologists were being supported by biblical uh, societies. Now, what do you think they were trying to find? Right, things that supported the Bible. And so, there were those people who slandered the facts and, and you know, bent things too far one way. Then you come along with people who are, you know, mamish connected that the other way. And no matter what evidence you pre present, I'll give an example. Um, there was uh, there's a thought among archaeologists that, that David Melech never existed. He was a um, legendary character like Mahabdi um, or King Arthur. Never really existed. He's a, he's a storybook character. So, uh, what do they do? They uh, eventually discovered, someplace up north, an inscription that said, this is such and such from base David. Evidence. So the archaeologists, not necessarily so. It could be that there was a guy named David who lived here. And this is base David. Yeah? Okay. Okay, you could, you could say that. But do you see a certain bias coming through? There's a gentleman I heard on the radio uh, two years ago, three years ago. His name is Bendel Jones. Bendel Jones is a non-Jew, a Noahide Jew. By that I mean he is not a Christian, but he <coughs> follows the Shev Mitzvahs with a Noah. He holds that uh, Yiddishkeit is MS, but he's not ready to become a Jew for whatever reasons. So he follows the Shev Mitzvahs. And um, he uh, had to circumvent the Israeli archaeological authorities in order to do uh, research here. He believes that he's discovered Gilgal. He, um, and with satellite photos and infrared things, he's found a whole bunch of evidence of where he believes Gilgal, Gilgal should have been and where it is, and he's, trying, he's been trying to get the permission to uh, excavate it. But it's the kind of a thing where because they know that he has a bent towards uh, biblical authenticity, he's, he's trying to be squeezed out. Nachamo okay. Kaffin Kenyon. Kaffin Kenyon did a, um, a study of the city of Jericho and concluded that, um, you know, the whole story is not true. The, 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 there was nobody living there at the time of Yoshua, and this wasn't true, and that wasn't true, etc. Years later, another archaeologist came along and did a more thorough investigation and concluded that the story had to follow exactly the way it was described in the Nach. They found the walls, and the walls had, had fallen out. Which, he says, doesn't make any sense, because an invading army would break the walls down, it would fall in, not out. So, they want to surmise perhaps it was an earthquake. They found that the grain, the storehouses were full and had been burnt which would make sense if, you know, it was in the springtime and the uh, granaries, you know, the, the harvest had been taking place, etc. So they put a whole bunch of different rayas which seemed to support <coughs> exactly the story as it existed in the Navi. 
two archaeologists doing two different excavations coming up with exactly opposite conclusions. So, therefore, when we talk about archaeological disproof, you're going to be hard put to find any archaeology that disproves the Torah. Um, the uh, palace of Ahasuerus was destroyed by Alexander the Great. Had been laying in ruins for many, many years. When it was finally excavated by a French archaeologist, he says, he writes afterwards, that he excavated holding the Megillus Esther in one hand. He said, there is no question that whoever wrote this had to have been inside of the palace. There is no other way they could have known the layout. If it was written hundreds of years later, then, then there's no way they could have known the exact layout of the building. It was destroyed. It was under rubble. But whoever wrote this knew exactly the floor plan of the palace. Etc. So that being the case, if you, you know, one can argue whether there's archaeological proof for the Torah or not. But this proof? This proof you'll be hard put to find. Uh, so people will tell you about the dating of the, uh, of the Exodus. You know, that when we, when we kind of happened, and when they kind of happened, and which king, and which one, and whatnot. But like I told you, the whole dating thing is, is, is uh, in shambles. They have to redo the whole dating process of when they believe different things, events took place. Okay, that takes care of, as far as I'm concerned, scientific problems with the target. Any, anything else that uh, should be covered in that? Yes, sir. Pardon? No. I never heard that one. That the uh, that the dinosaurs were the snake before their, you know, people cut off. I know, I just can't picture other McCoverman of Arontosaurus. Yeah. Oh, Poseidon. Now that brings us to miracles. Miracles. Yeah, what about him? Yeah, what is it? <laughs> they found different things that were written. For example, they found a 151st Psalm. Right? They found uh, uh, other texts of certain works. That's fine. Are they, are they really, really old? Sure. Are they accurate? Who says? We can conclude the following about the Essenes. Well, they weren't necessarily the Essenes. called the Dead Sea uh, sect. Because we know what the Essenes believed, and they are not them. But we knew there was a small sect called the Essenes, and we know there's some crazy sect over there, so call them the same ones. But, I mean, this is some small sect which probably did not make a major impact on Jewish life because they believed in being celibate. Consequently, they probably didn't have any children, um, and therefore they probably didn't last very long, right? And uh, they have a lot of scrolls. Some of them jive with what we have. Some of them don't. 
Zo. Yeah, but let's say they have a different version of uh, of something that we have. Say it. Let's say somebody wrote a 151st song. It wasn't David Amalek. Somebody else did, and they included it into their text. Beautiful. You know, I mean, I, the fact that they decided to, you know, write this kind of stuff and, and collect text doesn't mean anything. You know, I mean, uh, you'll, you'll dig up, uh, you know, uh, you know, some ancient library, you'll find all these scrolls. You, the only thing you can really determine is that these people really like scrolls. <laughs> but that they would necessarily their sacred text and that they consider them all authentic and that they, you know... Yeah. Well, give me a better one. What do you do with a with, with a Sefer Torah that was written and is filled with mistakes, beyond the ability to repair it? What do you do with it? Bury it. The covered. So someone could dig this up and say, "I found the real, authentic version." Otherwise, why would they bury it? Such covered. Because <laughs> it's wrong. <laughs> okay, how about that? <laughs> so there's definitely a lot of scrolls. <laughs> Anything beyond that is conjecture. All right. Miracles. Noah and the ark. You really believe Noah got all of those animals into the ark and it really rained for 40 days and 40 nights and the whole world was covered with water and um, the, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, the, um, you know, I mean, he got everything in. We didn't get all the hay for the elephant. Yeah. The Tower of Babel, and that the, all the languages were split. Splitting of the Red Sea, the Exodus. No, the Jews came out, and all the plagues, how to believe all this stuff. All right, no problem. But, but let's, let's get down to what, what is the problem here. The problem is, if there is a God who created the world from nothing, and... Um, you know, has an active interest in it. And he set up the laws of nature. Could he ever change them if it suited his purpose? Yeah. Well, then, can we explain these things in scientific terms? No. What do you call them? Miracles. Why? God wanted to. He had a strong, strong desire to change something around. So, there are people who try to show that things happened. Uh, throughout the uh, Middle East, there are different cultures that have um, flood legends. Um, there's evidence of the Middle East uh, and the Fertile Crescent, um, was it, four or five thousand years ago, having been completely covered with water. Um, the Babylonian story of Gilgamesh, all this kind of stuff. You know, the Seder. So, there are different people who say that there was there was this big flood that covered, etc. How could you fit everything in? That was a miracle. You can't accept miracle. You can't accept that God would set up laws of nature and then ever change them. Okay. We are, we don't see a problem with an all-powerful infinite God. I was like, if you accept the concept that God could have created everything from nothing, is then then making a big flood is really relatively minor. In the context of let's say bringing matter into existence from nothing. Yep. Oh, let's talk about that, but let's, let's go through the specific things. 
The Tower of Babel is fascinating because etymologists tell us, those are people who study language, um, I don't know if I told this, it just bears, bears a quick repetition. The, um, there was a, uh, a guy in Yeshiva who, um, he wanted to stay and learn a second year. And uh, his parents were furious at the idea that he wouldn't get back and start his secular education because that's what's really important. And you have to study what's really important. And his father was a professor in a university specializing in Hindu poetry. He had written his doctoral thesis on the use of a particular verb in Hindu poetry. You know, get back to the important things in life. So anybody can make a living. But the, but the, so these guys are etymologists. They study uh, language, and this much is clear: all language originally came from one primal language. They call it, uh, I think, Ur. Now they they don't suggest, for example, that um, um, that it was Hebrew. No one suggests that. But this much is clear. Ancient languages were much more complex than modern-day languages. Language has been moving towards more and more simplification. So, what you have to say is there was some real, like, ooga-booga language that eventually developed into these highly specialized languages and then slowly has been, you know, becoming uh, simple and simple as time goes on. It's possible. Or you could say that language was at one point extremely complex and has been becoming much more simpler. But that's an idea. In any event, that's the idea that all the languages split out. What do we think was the original language? Hebrew. That's why there's the idea that you can find words of Hebrew in every language. There's a professor in NYU who wrote a whole book on this. Uh, I forgot what it's called. But like, we found all these different words in, uh, in Hebrew that would exist in English. Uh, some of them are easy, like pacify. What's that in Hebrew? Lefayes. Right? Is what? Paradise, paradise. No, you can find words, chutzpah. But in any event, <laughs> nosh. But uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, you know words you can find in there, and that's the idea. There are those who want to suggest and says because Rebbe split all the people that that's where the continental drift took place. I don't know if you're aware of this that some guy finally took the map of the world and noticed that the a uh, little hump in South America fits right into the little spot there in Africa, and that you can sort of like stick Europe into the into the Caribbean, you know, and that everything at one point was one big landmass, and eventually drifted apart. So they want to suggest that maybe at the uh, Migdal Bavel, it says he split up all the people, he actually separated the landmasses. I don't know. Be that as it may, you um, uh, uh, the idea that a Kojbarak could choose to split up the languages. Uh, we would look at it as sort of a um, prism effect and uh, dividing them up into different sub-languages and cultures, 70 different ones. It's a possibility. Possibility. But again, you know, the fact that a Kushbarak could do something that is in an unnatural way, again, if he's an all-powerful being, could certainly do that. Splitting of the Red Sea is also, I mean, you don't know to what length people go. Uh, I don't know if I ever told you this one, that the Esamakos... Uh, they tried to explain the Esamakos and the Kriyas Yamsuf that it had to do with um, Atlantis. Atlantis uh, was, you know, you heard about the sunken continent of Atlantis. So what happened is, is the volcanic activity was um, was building up, so the water was getting much warmer, obviously, and that created a tremendous increase in the plankton 
the plankton is that little red stuff that like you know um, like whales eat and stuff. So that made it all very red. It looked like it was blood. The plankton uh, made it difficult for the frogs to breathe, which is the reason they had to go off onto the land now, and uh, they all died. And the frogs all died. That attracted uh, the uh, lice. Okay, and and on and on until you finally reach, you know, the burrud was actually the uh, beginning of the fiery hailstones that were falling from the volcanoes. The darkness was from the smoke that was being released. And then finally, when, uh, you know, and the fumes, whatever it was that was released, that's what killed the, the plague that killed the firstborns, right? You know what I mean? No, so he's telling it's probably much more, but that's the one that they chose to focus on. And, um, and finally, Atlantis sunk, and all the waters of the world rushed in to fill the spot. Hence, the splitting of the Red Sea. Now, people, people really have trouble with miracles. <laughs> people will go to no length. I mean, there's no length that people will go to in order to try to avoid saying an all-powerful guy split the Red Sea. I think you can also say that an all-powerful guy at that point in time. Oh, right, right. That's what somebody who was using the set, he says, but the fact that it happened at that particular time, trust me, if you can buy into that whole theory that God's building the Red Sea and making it into two big walls is easier to believe, in my opinion. But all right, uh, with all these things, an all-powerful guy can do whatever he wants. The basic question is, why? So I was talking once with a college student in, um, in England, in Leeds, and he said to me, I'm sorry, I just can't accept that God made it rain for 40 days and 40 nights. I can't. You know, and that flooded the world. I said, you know what? I'll tell you what. Don't get stuck on this. Let me ask you a question. Whether God flooded the world or didn't flood the world, why is he telling it to us? And this gets back to the six days of creation. Yeah? God created the whole world in a second. He chose to create it in six days. Why? And now you get down to the real issue. Meaning, whenever the Torah tells us a particular miracle, it's there to tell it to us for a reason. I was once going to England, and there was a plane that was uh, completely, just like, completely secular, guyish, you know, combination. Couldn't tell who's who. And uh, I went in, and I'm very nervous whenever I fly home, I'm going to sit next to, you know, and the whole thing. And there was, like, one other from behind the plane, this Rashiva, and he sits down right next to me. So I said, boy, what luck. He looks at me, he says, luck? He says, before I fly, I stay up all night. No, I stay up, you know, you know for whatever time it is, and Davin, that I should be able to sit next to somebody for him. I said, well, it worked. <laughs> I said, lucky for me, because you know, I always dominate. I should have an empty seat. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we were sitting there. And I remember it was Pashas by Yatesing, and uh, so you know we were talking whatever the idea. So he's, he he and the concept of Kvitzas Aderach, Machlech is Rashi and Ramban over there about whether or not you know Yaakov got there right away, and then he brought the Har the, the Harabais to him, or whether he ended up the Harabais. You know, the whole thing. So he had a whole mahalach. But obviously, we're not just arguing about did a Kodesh make the nace this way or that way. The point is, what's it trying to tell me? What's the message there? And therefore, I said to him, forget about whether you like the idea of it rained for 40 days, it didn't rain for 40 days, it was a big boat, it was a big boat. What's it trying to tell me? What is the message there? And then we discussed some of the ideas of why there was a marble, what would be the purpose of a marble, what's the concept behind a teva, you know, what, what, why, why would Coach Baruch split the Red Sea, why would he use that as a method, 
and all the different kind of ideas that went on to it. And he was fascinated. Because whether Kosh created the world in a nanosecond, in six, in six days, or in 16 billion years, to an infinite God, doesn't really make that much of a difference. If he chose to tell us that he did it in six days, however you want to work the timing, there's a message there. A message of the number six. We, we spoke about this already, in the four directions, the up and down, in this universe. And how things are set up, in the binion of the world, and all the things that come in, and that a person was created, and why he was there, and every single idea is explained by the Mepharshim, the teachers of Mosahaskel. There's a message in every one of these things for us to apply to our life. Because Baruch Hu didn't give us the Torah, you know what I mean, to, to, as a history book. What we call, to me, what anthropologists call the development of civilization is covered in voracious with two psukim. Right? Uh, two Vulkayan and, um, and uh, Hanukh. No, two, two Vulkayan and Lamech. No, Lamech's two kids. Two Vulkayan and I don't know Tanakh. Anyway, so it says, this one was the first guy to start, it was a Yoshev Olim, he was the first one to start, you know, uh, um, domesticating uh, animals. This was the first one to begin music, and this was the first one to begin making metal elements. There you go. Bronze Age, the Iron Age, all the development of civilization, culture, bingo, Tupsukim. Next. That's not, the, it's not here to tell me a history book. It's here to tell me important ideas that I need in order to be able to learn and to apply to my life. And that's the purpose of miracles, and that's really the thing that I try to focus on. Okay. I don't know... uh, Okay, I hope we can do all this next week. Uh, I'm going to try to run through the last two areas, which is others doing bad things, and certain things that people just can't accept. They just can't accept that God would or God would. Yes, sir? Sure, go ahead. I never understood how the animals left in the marble got from Cape America. All the animals, all the different kinds of animals. They walked. But uh, but it's across the ocean. What? It's across the ocean. Oh, that's a... Nobody suggests. This is a question for scientists, too. There's also kangaroos and different types of animals that only exist in certain continents and certain places. Right. Right. So... Scientists also agree that at some point the land was connected. You know, I mean, they, they, they suggest that the first people came across with, with the Eskimos and uh, <coughs> into the um, uh, Native Americans. They came across the Bering Straits. Not all the animals could. No, what about the ants? What about the? <laughs> well, the ants were easy. We probably got across on the, you know, on the, uh, on the bear's back. You know what I mean? Monkeys and stuff. I don't know if they came up there to die. You know? Yeah, I, I'm saying like you know. They came with boats. They had boats. Yeah. Well, you know, again. Um, whether they came, you know, whether there was uh, some sort of land connection between Greenland or not, you know, um, they came across to one of those methods. You know, it would have. It, it doesn't take these. It doesn't take these these things very long to move, right? You familiar with the killer bees? <laughs> you know the killer bees. The killer bees <laughs> were these African bees that um, somebody was studying in South America, and they got out. 
much to everyone's consternation, because now these killer bees would like descend on a village and sting everyone to death. And they were slowly moving up year by year. And they calculated how long it would take them to reach America. They were already in America. You know? And they had hoped that by interbreeding with uh, these bees that were in America, they would become more domesticated, but they didn't. They were the dominant strain. And uh, they were afraid that eventually these vicious bees would destroy the entire bee industry and the honey industry and all that kind of stuff like that. So I don't know what they're holding now. But it didn't take them long to go from the, south, the bottom of South America straight up to uh, North America. Yeah, I say that, you know, but, you know, the migration can go pretty fast, you know, these animals. Yeah, but they fly, that's the point. He wants to try to leave out those who fly, you know. But even those who... Right. The deer's in the antelope plate. The buffalo roam. Yep, well, they, they left there, <laughs> emigrated for new opportunities in America. But, um, no, you're right, there are certain ones that are only, you know, indigenous to certain areas. So, therefore, what do you want to suggest? That they had to have evolved only in that particular place? I mean, So, the fact that they may have traveled and then there was some kind of climactic change, as there have been some dramatic climactic changes in our history, and only those in a particular area survived. You know. I mean, from Spain they brought the horses to America. So people Right, what he's saying is, so who brought the koala bear and the, um, and the kangaroo, and the, the, what, the wallaby? You know, down to Australia, and how come we don't find them anyplace else? So they went to some place in Asia, to the Wallaby store. They bought out the, the store, and they brought it down to Australia, and then all the rest of the world died out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not terribly troubled with this particular question, but I'm not really a zoologist. So, uh, like that. You know what, let me just, I want to throw in one more point, because I, when I was reviewing last, last week's year, there was one question that I was not satisfied with that you would ask me. You would ask me. Um, and that is, we don't cremate because it's not covered to the mace. So you said, well then, stick it in the, in the ground, it'll not covered. Keep it in the freezer. You know? Do a question, yeah? So uh, I gave you an answer that I wasn't satisfied with, and I went home, and I, and I contacted my research team, which is my wife, and... Uh, <laughs> And I took it over, and she said to me something that was that was so push it that I'm embarrassed. I mean, she told me one thing, and then I'll tell you an answer. It's perhaps a little bit more of a mystical strain. You'll see, you know, which one you like better. Um, she had said to me that the um, a very good point. Not everybody who gets put into the ground decays. Sadiqim don't decay. And consequently, to store them in the ground is a very fine place. They're not going to decay. I most people do decay. Well, then that's some sort of a kapora for the body that it goes through this decaying process. Aye, so then why don't I burn it? Well, that would be the same thing as saying you obviously need a kapora and I'll punch you in the face. Understand? Because I decided you need a kapora. Put him on the ground. If God decides he needs a kapora, he'll get his kapora. And if he doesn't, then it'll be preserved beautifully. Isn't that nice? From a more mystical point of view, 
just like we place a seed in the ground and it rots and then life comes out. Yeah? Um, uh, yeah. This is, this is the mystical uh, school thought, you know. It's the same thing here. It has to go in the ground in order to be able to create Tchiyas and Mesim. Melech Memis or Mechaye or Matzmiach Yeshua. Right? In other words, goes down. Now, it should have been. You, you know, the, the, there's a different process there. But the idea is you get planted in the ground in order for the eventual Yeshua and the eventual to come back to life to become planted, so to speak. An opportunity. That's why having a proper burial has always been such an important thing. What? Freeze things? To keep them cool. You're going back to the you're going back to the freezer theory. Okay. Let's, let's.